HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Line. I'm Eli Sussman, your host. Today, I'm joined by Dookie Hong. Dookie grew up in Leonia, New Jersey. When he was 15 years old, he got a job cooking for Aaron Sanchez in New York City. He later attended the CIA, and after graduating, worked for David Chang and at the three Michelin star Jean George. Until recently, he was the executive chef of Kang Ho Dong Bak Jang in Manhattan's Koreatown. He is the co-author of the cookbook Koreatown, and all that just shy of his 28th birthday. Uh, Dookie, thanks for being with us on the line. No, thank you so much, Eli. Um, really honored to be on your platform today. And um, yeah, super excited. Let's get to it. Totally, man. Uh, okay. So you started your cooking career in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. You had a teammate on your baseball team. Yeah. His dad was a partner of Drew Nyport, yeah. who started Nobu. He has yeah. a ton of restaurants in mm-hmm. the city. He's been in uh 35-year restaurant veteran. Okay, Absolutely. so did you just go up to your friend and ask his dad for a job? How did how did you get involved? No, not at all. Um, it was a really weird thing. Obviously, all of this knowledge is is not known to me at, the, at that age. I don't know who Junior Porn is. I don't know any of this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I was just playing and, you know, just talking to him. I was really involved in the home ec program in my school. Um, and I think my coach, his name is Michael Bonadies, who's now my mentor uh, in this industry. He was just like, hey, like, if you're interested, I heard that you're interested in cooking, food, whatnot. Um, if you want to cook, come by. We're opening up this restaurant, which was Centrico with uh, Chef Aaron Sanchez. Um, if you want to come by, help out. Great. If you don't want to come by, how about great? You know, it was very, yeah. very laissez-faire, you know, but he was saying this door, is, this door is available to you. It's up to you. So he was noncommittal. And as a 15-year-old, were you ready to jump in or were you thinking like, oh, maybe I'll spend a month in the kitchen chopping and then I'll see if I like it? Or were you, were you yeah. thinking to yourself, I'm going to be a chef. 
Mm. I'm going to this restaurant to work. Yeah, no, none of that. I actually didn't know you could do this for a living. I didn't know a lot of things <laughs> at that age. Um, I don't think anyone knows anything yeah, at 15. I, you really don't. And you, I don't think, and I say it again, I think if I knew and kind of um, had this ambition to quote unquote be a chef and had, I don't think I would have lasted. I think it was just fun for me. I think it came to me where I was hanging out with really cool people, you know, inked up, uh, kind of older, drank beers on the line. Um, and I was just like, just fascinated. I felt like I was a part of a fraternity. I wasn't, uh, I just enjoyed it. I watched, um, my earliest kind of cooking memories aren't like Korean grandma or my mom was a great cook in the kitchen. It was just, I come from an immigrant family and, uh, we just spent a lot of time watching TV and just spending time alone with me and my sister because my parents are working so much but on saturdays uh, on pbs there was this like three hour window where uh jack pepin used to come out uh lydia bastianich uh rick bayless all these kind of like og um that's when rick bayless was kind of new apparently too like, <laughs> uh, and so like think about it at, at that time yeah into the uh tv kind of world and i was just so like <clears throat> uh like really drawn to that uh, especially jack pepin so i was like oh that seems really cool and all of that, that was what I was thinking. I was like, oh, I get to just cook. You know, I get to work in a kitchen. It wasn't like be a restaurant, be a chef, and, you know, all of that. I didn't understand any of that. Did so. they let you do anything? Were you were yeah. you a mascot? Were you thrown into the mix? What's it like being a 15-year-old at an Aaron yeah. Sanchez restaurant? It's like a pretty serious situation. You know, Absolutely. he's a real deal chef. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I uh, – still to this day, I thank uh, chef all the time. And when I see him, even to this day, I just think – him that he didn't treat me like a mascot at in his kitchen whether you're 14 or whether you're 40 you're a line cook or you're a dishwasher you're a prep cook that's your position you know you don't um and i remember the first job that i ever had um going my first task at least uh when i was cooking i remember it was a uh, saturday day he asked me to de-seed some dry chilies uh ancho chilies so great simple so like i still had this desire to like prove something to him and kind of i want to do really well and i remember he was just like gave me specific instructions he's like here you know dcds this amount wear gloves use this paring knife great i was like all right so how do i do it so i was like i'm gonna do it faster than anybody but also i'm not gonna wear gloves so that was the first time i did it i did the whole thing without gloves my hands are all red and whatnot and, you know, you're sweating while you're doing it, so you're wiping your forehead and whatnot. And I realized that's when I kind of understood the concept of capsaicin and when you put it on your skin that it's really bad news for you. And my first day in the kitchen, I lasted probably one task. So I went home after that. <laughs> so he was just like, dude, go home. He, like, uh, put, like, milk on it and all of that stuff. So he was You just learned like, the hard way that uh, the absolutely. chef way is the right way. Yeah, he, like, yeah. he knows what he's talking about. So I was yeah. trying to be a badass. I was like, oh, I don't have to wear gloves. Like gloves are for losers and i realized yeah he, like he probably knows a little bit better how to dc chili so yeah it's almost the exact opposite of what i would have wondered happened if they yeah. you know would have played some sort of prank on this 15 year old who they're <laughs> who they're maybe trying to get out of their kitchen yeah. you know dissuade you from going down this path but uh yeah. you tried to impress them and it yeah backfired the a little that, bit yeah i was the one that was like oh, i'm gonna like really show him and be the star of the kitchen but realized no nah, just you you take the right steps you know for the first six months i was doing one 
one task, you know, I was making tortillas, I was on the ceviche So were you station. working like one day a week and no. going to school or what were you doing? Yeah, so it was great because um, there was a, a, a couple things that I did. All my winter breaks and summer breaks were spent there. Mm-hmm. He graciously just allowed me to, you know, when you work for free, it doesn't really matter. No real set schedule. But school was great. You end at 3 o'clock, you get on a bus, a subway, you get off at Canal Street, Tribeca, Walk walk a few minutes and you're in the restaurant by like a little before five, which is great. What do your parents think? What what are your friends in New Jersey make of the fact that you're you're taking a bus and a train and yeah. you're like a real adult who's going to their job and your friends yeah. are probably like playing video games, right? Yeah, no, um, my parents didn't know what was going on. <laughs> they didn't. They were like, I don't think they would have. Not that they don't care. It's kind of more like don't get in trouble uh, and you're fine. But I think, at least for my friends, uh, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school, <laughs> so that wasn't a worry. Um, but yeah, no one really. My parents are great in that they're just super supportive. They're like, my dad told me one thing was that do whatever makes you happy, but just don't hurt people in the process and be really good at what you do. That what, was the only two rules. What do your parents uh, do for a living? Mm-hmm. So my parents are the most like generic Korean family uh, job titles. My mom ran a nail salon, and my dad owns a limo company. Okay, uh, like a, but the limo is not like a real limo; it's a Lincoln Town car. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, it's like so the that, most he, that he drives. Or yeah, that? but he has a few cars, so he okay. kind of runs the company. They all sold the company now, and and kind of so you grew up in New Jer- in New Jersey, and they still live in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, and in the you, same town. And now you're back, but we'll talk about I'm that back, in a little yeah. while. <laughs> <laughs> After all these years of cooking in a kitchen, you've ended up back in yeah, New I Jersey. Yeah, lost a little bit of my street cred okay. <laughs> with your parents. <laughs> um, well, we'll touch on what you're doing these days in yeah. a little while. Um, I want to know uh, after you spend some time in the kitchen with Aaron Sanchez. Yeah, uh, how long does it take until you you've got the bug and you say i'm gonna go to culinary school it was actually funny i wasn't even though i didn't know like like a lot of things i didn't know there was a culinary school Mm -hmm. i didn't know there was a a college or or an institution where you can learn more about this industry um it was actually chef chef Aaron was like you need formal training and I was like, Chef, I respectfully disagree. I think I'm just going to go with you and let's do this. You know, <laughs> me and you, ride or die. Uh-huh. And he was like, no, stop being an idiot. Go get formal training. And as any kid at that age would do, you just go to Google. Because I want to go to still go to the best one. You just typed in, I just typed in best cooking school. Literally those three words. First thing was the Culinary Institute of America. So I applied. I didn't know about Johnson & Wales. I didn't, now you, there's so many. Yeah. Um, in CIA in Hyde Park? Yeah, that was the, literally the first link that okay. came up. And honestly, if the first link was FCI or Johnson & Wells or some school in Texas, I probably would have gone there. Um, well done, SEO. Of, yeah, of the, thank of you. CIA, they <laughs> really <laughs> they, they scored their uh, they, tuition uh, there. Yeah, no, they they made their money for sure. And So you you Google CIA. Yeah, that's literally did, how Did I you came. go and uh, – did you enroll right away? Did you talk to Aaron about CIA or was it – was it sort of like oh, your own decision or we, yeah, your parents uh, were behind it? Yeah. Chef went to uh, Jaywoo. He went to Johnson & Wales. Mm-hmm. So um, we didn't actually really – he just said go, like get formal training. Right. Because I was like – I was already there for a couple of years and I was just like, no, nah. I was like, I'm good. I'm a line cook. I'm like, I know all the stations now. I think I'm like the best. You're way ahead of the game too. And in- Yeah. And I didn't realize because it wasn't more um, – yeah, I didn't know I was that ahead of the game. Actually, back at Culinary Institute, you needed some experience. So you needed, like, I think mm-hmm. back then it was six months or a year or something like that. So that's what it was. It was just filling a requirement. But, um, yeah, Chef was 
just very stuck on, hey, you need formal training. This is great, but this isn't your life. Formal training and knowing the foundations and fundamentals of cooking will really aid you to go further. So, how do you how did you feel when you arrived in culinary school? And I imagine that quite a few people that were there had, if they had some experience, we're talking like a maybe yeah. two months ex. They did an externship mm-hmm. somewhere, right? They cooked in maybe their parents' restaurant yeah, or something like yeah. that. You got years of experience on yeah. the line in a Manhattan restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you came in. Uh, did you feel like either – did you feel like you were ahead of the game or did you feel perhaps like it had, was a mistake? Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. I dreaded – and I should, probably shouldn't say this already, but um, the first half because it's two years, yeah, um, I dreaded it. And I think a lot of it, looking back on it now, it was, it was, a lot of it had to do with my arrogance. You know, I really did feel like I was better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the line. I was cooking professionally, you know, uh, for for a year. So let's say a year, because let's say it, it took a year to really be an impact on the actual kitchen. Yeah. But yeah, so you know, these guys like don't know how to hold a knife and they're so slow, and looking back on it now, why I didn't have a good time and why I just felt, you know, I didn't really. I just, I just felt I was better than them. I just felt I was better than the school itself. I was like, I don't need this. Even going there, I was like, I don't need this, but I'm going because chef told me. Um, looking back on it, a lot of it just stemmed from me and a lot of my attitude and, and a lot of the arrogance that I had. So this is a good transition. How humbling was it to leave uh, CIA yeah. and end up in a David Chang kitchen? Yeah. Um, super, super humbling. Uh, that... I still say it now. I think the best chefs I've ever worked next to on a line all come from that kitchen. Like, really, that I respect. Uh, for example, uh, just Peter Serpico, um, Sean Gray, uh, Kevin Pemoyer, uh, Joanna Ware. I just, I'm just seeing all these, like, these names that maybe aren't, like, they're household to me because they just made an impact on my name. Sean, Sean Gray, uh, he runs Co now. He's probably one of the smartest guys that I know on every level, on a culinary sense and whatnot. And being next to a guy like that, cooking next to him, picking his brain was invaluable for I was 18 at that time. And um, it was really humbling to know that, okay, you're not that great. And I needed that for sure. It seems to be one of those kitchens that's going to go down in lore. Like everyone who passes through there and puts in time there has just deep, deep chops. Yeah. Uh, is it um, – was it a, a hard place to work? Was it challenging mentally mm-hmm. and physically even with your sort of like uh, cooking pedigree that, you've, mm-hmm. that you'd established? Um, were you welcomed and was it a hard cooking job? It was hard. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of it was mentally hard. Um, you know, I was on the bun station for, for months, you know, and I'm used to running a line, cooking steaks and whatnot, and now I'm making buns. And it was really breaking me down. And I think for me, as a cook, I was never used to that mental pressure. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories about this. So back then where I was, it was in 08, right when uh, the, the first co was about to open. So it was like a couple months, few months before co was opening. So everyone was on high alert. Uh, Chang was just like the, the epitome of what like Chang's like horror stories are. It was probably his, his peak. Um, but yeah, just every time he comes into the kitchen, you know something is there will be some raising of the volume and of, of his voice and uh, things you'll be called out for something. And I've been called out for many different things. It's so funny because 
it sticks with you. You're angry and you're pissed off at that time. You're like, oh, like, what the hell? Like, why, why is he yelling at me for that? It's so funny. The next day, you don't do it anymore, though. And I, I respond very you well to quickly learn your lesson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all those chefs there were super um, supportive. They were just like, dude, learn this. This is why we do this. Um, but, but in that same respect, they expected you to hold your own, too. So it wasn't like babying you and they're going to go over. Like, you get as much as you put in with a lot of, with a lot of anything, right? But especially in Momofuku, they gave you a lot of pride that you were part of a group that i guess was making an impact in the industry but in that same respect uh be humble about uh kind of you're not that great that you think you are and I, it was really inputted into my mind that um humbleness <laughs> was was a virtue uh in cooking uh we're pretty close in age and we've yeah. both uh run kitchens yeah. at, a, at a fairly young age something that yeah. uh when i was presented with the opportunity i found totally terrifying Mm. um i was incredibly excited but uh to not have the ability to lean on someone who's Mm. older than you with an extreme amount of experience um was very difficult personally i leaned on my brother he was older and Mm. he was actually he was running roberta's where we're sitting right now who did you go to when you uh became the executive chef when you had um issues problems uh a a lapse of confidence here and there who do you who do you reach out to in those moments that's such a great question i think um and i deal with that even right now um just kind of going into a new chapter in my life i am so jealous of of uh jealous and not jealous sometimes of when um a lot of my friends are working for these big name chefs or these really big uh pillars in the in the food industry you're right and i think that's where we kind of connect in that um i didn't have a very set um, culinary mentor to say, "Hey, you're doing this wrong. Hey, you're this isn't right. Fix this. Fix, fix that." Um, a lot of it for me was um, my community, um, and not just not just like the food community, because it's great. Even now, I have a lot of people that I can call just for quick advices. Hey, is this right? Should I do this? Should I do that? Um, but also, even my faith community, right? And I think that's something that I really do talk about a lot. Um, shamelessly, because I really would not be here if I didn't have that element in check. Because you're right, and you know uh, better than anyone how hard it is to run something when you don't have, I guess, the cushion, right, or that kind of uh, the safety net in thinking, all right, like even if I mess up, chef's got my back. Exactly. Or this person's got my back. Yeah. Um, it's on you, you know, and uh, it's a great thing, and that's something that you thrive on, um, but some you sometimes realize there's a big risk on that too. And for me, yeah, my faith in my church community was, was huge in that. So beyond that, uh, you know, leaning on them, when you took over, Mm -hmm. um, at the restaurant in Koreatown, how old were you? Uh, we actually opened it. So it was an empty space. It was really great experience for me because I saw an empty space and saw a restaurant come out of it so for me i was just like oh this is how it's done you know like you see when it's construction you see when we're talking about permitting and licensing all this stuff and then we and then when the gas is on you got to start cooking i was 25 um i remember it opening uh i was presented with the project at 24 25 it While opened. you were still at Momofuku, you were presented with the no, project? No, I was you at, were at actually, Jean George? Yeah, I was at Jean George's, and I joined this group. Um, kind of their their dream was trying to be like a Korean hospitality or just trying to showcase Korean hospitality in a different way. I kind of like that, and going back to my roots and my culture. 
Um, but yeah, it was around 24, 25 uh, being and presented with that. What is Korean hospitality? Because yeah. I have come to that uh-huh. restaurant when you were still there yeah. uh, to eat, and I was blown away by so many things, Appreciate but that. a couple things that I'll list. Uh-huh. Uh, we were greeted in a very dramatic fashion <laughs> yeah. when we came in. Yeah, yeah. It was extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Our server was one of the most energetic people that I've ever met, yeah. and the servers there do all the cooking for mm-hmm. you. So mm-hmm. unlike other Korean uh, barbecue restaurants where you do some of the cooking on right. the grill, um, it's a little bit of uh and i don't mean this in a negative way it's a little bit of like a performance like Absolutely. they're really they put on like a pretty good show yeah, right yeah. and so um i assume that a lot of that comes from you and and the management team but Absolutely. so how do you make those decisions about like um all right so you're in a blank space yeah. how, how do you guys determine what the vibe is going to be like and what the how the server will interact yeah, with people. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't what, what easy. What are those decisions like? Yeah, it wasn't easy. I think uh, for us, it's the whole team, right? So the management team, it's uh, for us, I'm in charge of the food. At the end of the day, the food has to be good because none of that, all of that is gimmicks and shows if the food is bad. Um, so uh, me worrying about the food, but you realize, like you just mentioned, our servers are essentially half cooks because they do 50% of the cooking. And you're teaching these college kids and these guys that don't really have any culinary experience how to cook meat perfectly. Um, and these aren't cheap cuts of meat. So when they mess up, you really feel it. Feel it. You're like, oh, God, like, no. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yes, I had 21 guys in, in my kitchen, but I also had 40 servers slash cooks. Um, and it was just creating that vibe. And what you mentioned, what Korean hospitality is, it's just, for me, what I view it as is, just large convivial large format convivial uh drink a lot eat a lot laugh and um i love that and i think uh Pek Chung was a great experience for me because it really embodied that in one one space uh the greeting that you're talking about is we're just saying hello you know but we really want you to know that we really welcome you here yeah um something like that something little like that um these guys practice these guys practice you know greeting you in sync um the servers are you know m- like really encouraged to know who their guests are and stuff like that and i think that kind of hospitality is something that i'm really attracted to even you know uh, when i did leave the restaurant uh, that's something that i always always keep uh, that kind of philosophy on hospitality we we definitely are going to touch on uh what you're doing now i know that you left i have another question about the banchan and also uh there was a egg corn Uh cheese that gets poured in sort of a like, an like a outside yeah. of a of the grill, yeah. like there's a little area that collects all this egg, and you kind of there an omelet gets made. Yeah, um, can you talk about that? Is that uh, is that traditional? Is the banchan that you serve traditional? I, yeah. I know that there's a lot of like chefs and food people listening mm-hmm. that love. I mean, some people say banchan is the best part of right, getting right. of getting the Korean I barbecue. Agree. Yeah, um, can you talk a, lo- a little bit about those flavors that sure. you decided on? Yeah, a, a lot of the panchans, uh, little side dishes you get, it's a barbecue. And for us, when we focused on was, let's make it a meat mecca. Let's make it meat-focused. So all these panchans, you'll see a lot of acid, a lot of light stuff um, that really complement fat really well. Um, a lot of heavy cuts of meat, uh, marinated cuts of meat. So you'll see kimchi, obviously, pickled daikon, uh, lettuce with really light dressing, like a soy garlic dressing. Um, and some of the purpose of the panchan is just for you to munch on while you wait for the meat to cook. So everything is in tenfold. So you'll see our panchan is not as plentiful as maybe some other uh, Koreatown restaurants, but everything was with intent. You know, that panchan is there because we want you to eat it 
um, while you wait for it. Or it's meant to be eaten with the meat or the pork or whatnot. So even the steamed egg is, uh, is a very traditional kind of dish, the steamed egg that you get in a Koreatown. But what's a fun way to present it? Why not cook it while your meat is cooking? Um, and the corn and cheese is just uh, freaking delicious. So there's no there's no Korean or <laughs> culinary reason for that. It's just delicious. And it, melty cheese and sweet white corn, you can't really go wrong. I am joined today by Dookie Hong. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Koreatown, the cookbook. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to The Line. I'm joined today by Dookie Hong. He was previously the chef of, say it for me. Uh, Pekjong. New York City. Right. Korea And he is uh, going to talk a little bit about his uh, new project in a little while, but uh, we are going to launch into Koreatown, the cookbook. Uh, you are the co-author of this. Yeah. And it took you about two years to write it. Um, tell us first a little bit about how you met Matt, your yeah. co-author, yeah. who's an awesome dude. Absolutely. I love Our Matt. mutual friend, yeah. Um, and I want to know about some of the exploring that you had to do in mm. order to do research for this cookbook. You went to a bunch of different cities. Yep. Let us know where you went. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, so Koreatown, it came out uh, this February, earlier on this year, and we mentioned Matt uh, Rodbard. Uh, he's a uh, journalist, food journalist out in New York City, and he's, he's a great friend to both of ours. And um, yeah, it, honestly, this book came out of, uh, it was his brainchild. It, it's 100% him. And, you know, when people look at this project, they think, oh, probably the Korean guy thought about the Korean book. No, it's the Jewish guy in the project that thought about the book. And I was, I felt more like, uh, I don't know, the token Korean guy kind of on the project to legitimize <laughs> or, or give it some credit. Um, but no, like all joking aside, I think the book became something of its own. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, Matt and I would be the first to tell you we didn't know what the hell we were doing. I still don't think we know what the hell we were doing regarding the book. Um, it was just embraced by the industry, embraced by the community, the Korean community, and, the out- and not even the Korean community. So, you know, uh, like you mentioned, we... Spent two years on the road going to New York, uh, L.A., and any Korea towns in between, any any city that would have us, we were there. And Matt really just was wanted to have a Korean book, a Korean cooking book that wasn't like grandma's cooking made simple or Korean food dumbed down. You know, it was just Korean food um, in our voice, uh, kind of how we would mention it to our friends. So... Uh, obviously, we traveled to New York and L.A., kind of the two biggest Korea towns. Um, but, yeah, Chicago, Atlanta, um, 
Houston. I don't know why we were in Madison, Wisconsin, but we were in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> um, uh, D.C., obviously, all these cities. And, yeah, we learned a lot. And we had an incredible photographer named Sam Horan, and he documented all of this. And, yeah, it was – we learned. I learned a lot as a Korean even myself, even thinking, oh, I know, I know this cuisine, I know this and that, I know Koreatowns, I live in one of the best ones in the, in, in the country, but I learned a tremendous amount, and there's stark differences in all these Koreatowns in every city. Like, I couldn't name you one Koreatown that was sim- even remotely similar to uh, the next. You know, L.A. is so different from New York, Atlanta is different from Dallas, and Dallas is different from Chicago. Um, so it was a really big learning experience for me, and it was fun. I mean, we were going in and we were like pretending to be bloggers because most of these Korean establishments won't let you like take pictures because they think you're stealing recipes for some reason. I don't know. Um, we were taking, we were doing photo shoots in like the parking lot of a, of a Motel Six. Like legit, we would lay it out because Sam was like, "This is perfect lighting. We gotta like get it." Um, there was a lot of stuff <laughs> where because we didn't know how to make a uh, cookbook. Um, it just kind of made it more that more special. We didn't have any boundaries, too. Um, so, you know, you're uh, you're born in New Jersey, yeah, and your parents were born in the United States, or no? Yeah, I actually lied. I'm not born in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Um, I was born in Korea. Oh, came you were here okay. when I was a toddler, one, one okay. or two. Uh, ended up in Texas. Lived there for a few years. Ended up in Alabama, lived there for a couple of years, and then moved our way up to Jersey, New York. So you spent all of your real childhood, anything that you can remember, in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Um, was this a a deeper experience for you beyond writing a cookbook? Can you mm. talk a little bit about um, – did you uh, learn any – not to be totally cliched, but did mm-hmm. you learn something about yourself while writing oh, yeah. this cookbook that you did not know? And um, – also, how did this impact your relationship with um, your your family and your yeah. parents by going on really like a, a full on exploration of of Korean food and Korean Absolutely. culture? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think for me, I learned an incredible amount. Forget if you even if you move the food element to this, it really reads like a culture book. Um, we have a lot of people involved in it, and for me personally, as a Korean American, <clears throat> just seeing how other Koreans live. In different cities, I mean, there's you don't understand why there's a Korean restaurant next to a Korean laundromat next to a a, a, a dry clean like all of these things, and that's our Koreatown. So when we define Koreatown, it wasn't like kind of what you think. It doesn't have to be a big city or a big block. It was <clears throat> maybe two Korean restaurants next to a Korean supermarket. That was Koreatown to us. And for me, obviously, it was this big sense of pride uh, as as a Korean myself. And for me, I I was just like, wow, the kind of um, the grit. I don't really know how to call it, but that grit or that tenacity to survive in a place like a Korean Asian person to survive in Houston or in the middle of Madison, Wisconsin. Like, why? Why are you? I keep remembering while I was there. I was like, why am I here? And I meet another Korean. I was like, why are you here? Like, what got you here? And all of these things, you still realize that Koreans, no matter where they are, uh, you can drop them off in the middle of a desert. They'll try to keep their culture. You know, we don't. um, Yes, of course, there's some blending. Of course, there's um, Atlanta is a great example. There's a chef named uh, Cody Taylor and Chian Lee. Um, They do heirloom barbecue. It's an American barbecue joint. You go in. 
It's like briskets, ribs, great. You ask them how they made it, it's uh, Korean soybean paste, Korean chili paste. So you don't know why it's good and why it's delicious or what's so different about it, but it's you know rooted in kind of Chef Chian, who's Korean. So they, they will adapt, but they'll always kind of keep their heritage and keep their culture, and that's something that I, I was really proud of. That's so interesting about what's happening in Atlanta because, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't tell people what's – you don't say yeah. we rub it with goju shang right. or whatever, but it's so delicious and yeah. it has such a massive, intense flavor Absolutely. to it. Um, and essentially, they're making barbecue, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, I used to live in L.A. Mm-hmm. and I uh, went to a lot of uh, Korean barbecue restaurants mm-hmm. in L.A. Um, there was this – place when I moved there and had sort of this lore. It was called the corner place. And uh-huh, had this uh-huh. cold noodles, cold noodles, cold yeah. noodles soup lore. Yeah. Um, are there, is, are there tons of places that have like an exclusive recipe that yes. they do the best version mm-hmm. of? And did you, do you agree with that? Did you find any places and you thought, yeah. Oh my God, I've been traveling around the United States. Yeah. This is the best hundred percent something that I ate. Absolutely, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of Korean restaurants, or even Asian restaurants in general, they really focus on kind of single varietal, if you use a wine term, um, kind of restaurant single concept. So, hey, if this guy makes really good noodles, he's just making noodles, and it's really good. If he makes good stew, he's making this type of stew, and it's really damn good. LA was a great example. Corner Place is a perfect example. They do these. Uh, it's called tongchimi, cold radish, water kimchi noodles, um, and you just go for that. Like, yes, they have barbecue and they have, it's a barbecue place. You don't eat the barbecue. You just go just for that. I just and, remember people saying like, yeah. just go and eat this cold noodle yeah. cucumber. Don't waste your time kind of with a barbecue. Slightly gelatinous, watery oh soup. Yeah, it's and so it's, refreshing. I think yeah. of it all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, actually, I Matt, after we went to your restaurant, uh-huh. Matt took us to Pochu 32. Is yeah, that it, yeah, right? Yeah. And we had an army stew. Uh-huh. That's what they're known for. Can you tell yeah. a little bit about army stew? It's yeah. such a to me it was such a unique item mm-hmm. and I had um, no familiarity with it whatsoever right. before eating it. Yeah, I mean obviously Korea, so that's a perfect example of a dish how culture affects food. You know, culture expects uh, uh, really impacts uh, a country's cuisine and that's a dish well liked and loved by Korean Koreans, you know, but you know, we were that's a dish that was kind of uh invented by kind of the army, um, the U.S. Army in the 1950s when the Korean War uh, was happening or ended, the U.S. Army would settle base at the, near the DMZ. So we would have all these American products. We would have Spam. We would have Hershey's chocolate. We would have Boston baked beans. So American cheese, right? So all of this, but we have kimchi, which is what we like. So this dish is a perfect mashup of what they would have eaten near the army base, kind of the town surrounding. So when you go to Korea, there's small pockets or small towns and villages that specializes in the best pudechige, right? The best army stews. And you see uh, geologically, they're located near the DMZ, near the army bases, naturally, right? I want to shift gears a little bit and Mm -hmm. ask your perspective. Um, as a chef um, who has been working and cr- cooking Korean food yeah. uh, the most recently, uh, do you have an opinion on sort of the fetishization of mm. Korean food and Korean barbecue as sort of like um, 
it's such a wild out there thing that yeah. like you know a bunch of you know white people show up and they mm-hmm. go and it's like their crazy night on 33rd street yeah, in yeah. the middle of manhattan like yeah, it's yeah. some uh totally obscure thing that mm-hmm. can never be done um what are your thoughts on like the instagram culture yeah. and how that's kind of fueled that scenario yeah um kind of Korean food and how it's kind of maybe even over glorified. Right. And I think for me, I remember starting this, um, I'm not, I don't cook Korean food because I'm Korean or I just have this, like, I want to wave the flag or whatnot. I just genuinely love eating Korean food. I genuinely, when I crave stuff, it's usually Korean food. Yes. I crave tacos every now and then when I'm in LA and whatnot, but, um, I just try to cook food that I love, uh, that I love to eat. And that's how I cook. I, you know, John George's, the three Michelin star fine dining was great and great for my experience, but I don't eat like that, you know, so how could I really cook with my heart like that, as cliche as that sounds? So for me, when Korean food is just, it's a very simple thing. And when I started this, when I started cooking Korean food, I was like, I just wanted to be part of the conversation. I just want a Midwestern family, a, a family from Kansas saying, hey, what do you guys want for, what do you guys want for dinner? All right. Chinese might be in the, in the conversation, pizza. American, some way down the road, maybe 50 years later, 100 years later, I want some really middle America family saying, oh, what about Korean, right? If that happens, I'm good. We're good. I don't care if it's Instagram a thousand times or but does it, okay. does it bother you that, like, mm-hmm. the food community seems to have just discovered Korean food and, like... Uh, Obviously, mm-hmm. it's been delicious for a very yeah. long time. I had a uh, chef at uh, Jean Georges that he said the same thing. This was in 2009, before I would say even the past five years with all this Korean food kind of blew up. Yeah, um, he was like, "Dude, I don't know why Korean food is not liked because it has the same flavor profile as what Americans love. It's got the sweetness, it's got the spiciness, it's got the savory." And I was like, "Chef, I agree. I don't know what to tell you." <laughs> um, am I first? No, I, I'm just appreciative. Hey. Better late than never, mm-hmm. um, and we're just glad that people are enjoying our food. And who cares if it's, you know, if it wasn't for twenty years like Japanese food was or Chinese food was? We're just glad that we just get an opportunity to represent our culture and our food. You know. So what are you doing now? I know that you've left the restaurant, mm-hmm. and uh, there were some news reports that you were uh, working on sort of a hospitality type yeah. of project. Can uh-huh. you let the listeners know uh, where your head's at? Where are you heading now? Yeah, I mean, hospitality group was my dream, so I think that kind of got skewed a little bit where you don't go and you know try to build a house, like try to build a mansion. You, you know, you start by laying one brick at a time, right? So for me, that's my mentality. It starts with one concept, you know, and you have to gain... Uh, your customers and your guests trust, right? You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to do this big thing and think people are going to come and lining up. You have to do concepts, start one concept at a time where you build your clients, your guests' trust. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. One, one concept at a time. My goal and my dream is to have a hospitality group um, that really empowers young, talented uh, chefs or sommeliers or service people kind of with the same vision. You know, I'm a firm believer that when you gather the right people, the right product will come. You know, I'm not, like, stuck on this million-dollar idea or this restaurant concept, like, all right, let's, like, do this. You know, I'm just like, no, I want that really, like, badass chef or that that badass wine guy, badass, you know, service person. And then I'm sure if we gather all of us in a room, 
we can come out with a pretty cool concept or a pretty cool bar, whatever idea. Um, so that was my dream. I think right now we're just kind of taking a step back and be like, all right, let's start with one concept. What do you want to do? Right now I'm just working on a concept where um, I think for the past couple of years, maybe for the past year, uh, I wasn't a part of a project that I was really into. And this is not a knock on anybody and whatnot, but I want to start doing projects that I fully believe in, that I can go all in and with no hesitation. Um, I don't think I've had that. I think going forward, um, and I realize it's a privilege. I realize that I'm part of the 1% of the 1% that has an ability to even fathom this kind of, like, have the opportunity to go the direction that I want to go and not go the direction that I'm told to go. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to take advantage of that. Um, but in that same process, while I go, I want to kind of empower a lot of the chefs that I've met through the travels of the book and just personally where damn, like, they're so talented, but they may not have the resources or the network. But maybe I have, or maybe my other friend has. So how do we do that and give them a platform, give them a, a, a chance to showcase what they're really passionate about? So that's kind of what I'm working on. It's very vague, but I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one step at a time. Do you, do you think we will see you in a kitchen again in the next year or two? Oh, absolutely. I would I would go crazy if I wasn't in the kitchen. I go crazy right now that I'm not in the kitchen. <laughs> um, in the next year, you will definitely see me in the kitchen, possibly multiple kitchens, uh, not necessarily in New York. Uh, I want to – the hospitality Any idea group, if it's not New York where it might be? Cities um, that you're thinking of? Any city Any city is open game. Uh, whichever city will have us, whichever city needs us, right? I mm-hmm. think uh, just for Korean barbecue sake – Honestly, I, I wouldn't want to open up a Korean barbecue in a city like L.A. where every other block is, is some Korean barbecue. That's a good Korean barbecue. Yeah. Maybe do it in a city where, uh, maybe like Denver where it's not so well-known or it's, there's not that many there. So um, we always want to fill a need, uh, fill a void, and we want to do it right. So I think uh, I'm excited for that, uh, but we want to be kind of in, really intentional with how we do it but not rush things. So, Yeah. Cool. Well, it sounds like you've got a big year ahead of you. I do. Cannot wait to uh, have you come back uh, Mm -hmm. down the line, on the line, and talk uh, more about whatever this project may be when it comes to fruition. Uh, It's been really cool hearing about uh, everywhere that you've worked and um, all the exciting projects that you've already got under your belt. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. No, I'm really uh, just one, you know, thank you for just allowing me on your platform once again and letting me share my story. This is incredible for you. I know you're starting out this show and this is like a huge opportunity for you. And this is a dream of mine um, that you're doing. So I'm so (laughs) jealous because you get to share other people's stories and you're so good at it. So thank you. Thanks, man. It was awesome to hear your story. Thanks for listening. This is The Line every Tuesday at 11 a.m. on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.